0: Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. This is part two of our conversation with Mary Nichols from Texas Caregivers for Compromise. So let's have a listen. Cost is quite a cost in terms of the human toll for everybody involved. And I know what you're saying, I've heard that from a number of individuals here as well as to that phone call I mean I can't even begin to start to imagine what that is to know that if you get a call at a certain time of the day, you're thinking the worst and it happens not to be so to live in that type of. um, fight or flight type of state is, is extremely hard and. Going to, um, you know, for the one year of the, the lockout, you were in Austin, Texas, and um, you had a um, protest happening. Can you just uh, let us know what you, you did uh, for that to, again, further call to make the changes that should be happening?
1: Our national advocacy, like I said, we have, we have a Caregivers for Compromise group in every state um, in, in this country. Some are more active than others, some are bigger than others. We're Texas, we're one of the biggest. Um, We might be the biggest. It's either us or Florida, one of of us is the biggest. Florida and Texas are the most active caregivers for compromised states. Um, But the coalition of states got together and we're doing some anniversary pushes to remind our legislators statewide that facilities were still closed, that it had been a year, Um, the suffering was ongoing, please don't forget them. Um, And so there was a lot of that going on nationwide. Here in Texas, there was no need for us to um, petition because we did that back in August. There was no need for us to protest, we did that back in August, but mostly because we have our legislators' attention Last fall, we got our legislators' attention. We sent out um, books with our essential caregiver proposal, and they did listen to us. They called me, they spoke to me, they walked through it with me. Texas Health and Human Services, when they adopted our essential caregiver uh, program, used a lot of what was in our own proposal. So our group has been effective in communicating with um, our governor's office. Called me, so we. Communicate with them, we've communicated with our legislators, we've communicated with Health Human Services. So there's really no need for us to protest and say, listen to us because they were listening to us. At the same time, it had been a year and we did need to make sure people realized we were not going away, that the the guidelines in place um, worked when they worked, but those facilities who not understand the guidelines misunderstood the guidelines or simply chose not to follow them we're still preventing residents from having access to their loved ones and those people were still alone and we needed to make sure that our legislature knew that we were not going away Um, so we had already done our traveling signs the sign behind me um so states across the country started um doing traveling signs last fall one of the projects we did in here in Texas was we got 300 of these signs behind me Um, they I have a small version right here they're kind of like this and we wrote a name let me see if I can get this on here we wrote a name down here on the bottom yes um of loved ones who were either living in isolation or who had died in isolation and what we did was we traveled those around the state. We would leave them in one location for a few days and then we would meet up with another group member and we put them in another location for a few days and we actually traveled those around Texas. Texas is a big state, that was a big ordeal. Um, when I first threw that idea out, had no idea if it was gonna work or not. I just like threw it out and said, hey guys, I got a crazy idea, what do you think? Well. We did it last fall and it was very successful. So in March or early this year, when they wanted a March project, the coalition decided, let's do the traveling signs Texas did. So we had states all over the country using this exact same sign. And um, some of them traveled them, some of them just left them in one location. Some of them used them as petition signs when they held their protest at their capitals or wherever. But some of them, their actual state capitals gave them permission to put them on the lawns. Governor DeSantis gave Mary Daniel permission to put her 300 signs on the Capitol lawn. Mm-hmm. So it was really remarkable that these things that Texas has done over the last nine months, some of the other states were beginning to do. So we, we didn't do any of those things that they were doing. So we were kind of the cheese standing alone since we had already done the traveling signs, we'd already done a petition, we'd already done a protest on the steps, we didn't need a protest, our legislators were listening to us. What could we do to remind our, prote- our, our legislators that we're still here and that residents still need their guidelines expanded because they're still being isolated, essential yes. caregivers are still kept out, visitors are still not being allowed in. So, I threw out another crazy idea. And this time I asked the group so. Muted me for no reason. Okay. And let me shut the door because my dog is barking.
0: Okay.
1: So sorry about that. So. I threw out another idea and I asked the group, how do y'all feel about one more traveling sign? But this one will be a great, great big one. And we will fly it around the state capitol from a helicopter. Well, I couldn't get the helicopter. I got an airplane. Um, I couldn't believe it. They jumped on board. I am so sorry that dog is barking. That's okay. We raised $7,000 to hire an airplane to fly our logo around the state Capitol for four hours. And March 12th was the last day, March 12th was the last day that we had free and open access to our loved ones in long-term care in 2020. March 12th was also the last day that our legislators here in texas were able to file bills um most of our national groups did anniversary events on march the 12th and march the 13th we chose the 12th because we knew the capitol would be full and so we flew our plane around the capitol for four hours on march the 12th with a um 25 by 50 foot banner i think okay Okay that said isolation kills too. So uh, we were noticed. <laughs> Do you wanna share some of those pictures? Sure. Oh, yeah. uh, it was really fun because we actually, uh, I and some of my group members had some meetings with legislators that morning mm-hmm. and and passed some in the hallway that we were familiar with. So all of those legislators wow. we met with or saw, we were like, hey, by the way, wow. you wanna go outside and look at our plane? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I did get a lot of emails from some of those offices that said we did, we went out and looked at your plane. Wow, well done, y'all. So um, so yeah, let me share some of those pictures with you. Um, uh, let me move forward here. This is actually our plane. Um, this is our banner. And we did have trailing letters here uh, that said open long term care facilities. Um, we just kind of felt like and after a year it was time for those emergency rules to go away.
0: Yes.
1: And uh, it, it really was time. We, our loved ones are vaccinated. We have in, in our facilities anywhere between 85 and hundred percent vaccinated residents in most of our long-term care facilities. Now I do know in central Texas, that number is a little bit smaller. Um, I think, I think in the middle of our state, some of them are still waiting on their second vaccine. but we have an extremely high number of vaccinated residents. I do believe most facilities are almost 100%. Um, We really felt like with our loved ones being almost 100% vaccinated, we as family members were committed to also getting vaccinated. I actually don't know of anyone in our group who has objected to the vaccine. I know there are plenty in the national group but uh, in our 3,100 family group here in Texas, I, I don't know of any who have said that they have not gotten the vaccine or are not going to get the vaccine. So we've made a commitment to infection control, and um, the vaccine is part of that. So we really felt like it was time to end those emergency rules, and, and this is one of, the, one of the ways we told them that. Um, it was kind of a cloudy day, but you can see that's the, the plane flying over our our yeah. capital right there. So um, it was really neat. We uh, we made a big splash. With that. <laughs> Texas does things in a big way. <laughs> um, and what's really neat about it is because we bought the banner, we own it, uh, we can actually fly that or ship that to another state and they can fly that in some of our other states um, and just fly that isolation kills two banner if they wanna do that. So uh, We may actually do that in um, in the national capital at some point if we okay. can get the flyover approval. Yes, yes. I'm looking into it. Um, <laughs> there is a federal essential caregiver bill that uh, Congresswoman Claudia Tenney has filed and uh, it would be really neat if it were possible to get the plane to fly that uh, somewhere over DC around the time uh, that maybe there are, I don't know, press conferences or Mm -hmm. hearings or something going on that have to do with that bill. But that's in the future. And that's just one of those big ideas floating around my head that I haven't gotten anybody to sign off on yet. But you know what? sign off on the other big ideas so exactly i'm too worried about it
0: no no definitely not Definitely not. And I know you mentioned about the um, about Texas being 100% open and back on March the 3rd of 2021, uh, Representative James Frank, who is the chairman of the House Human Services Committee, he sent out a tweet saying that uh, Texas will not be 100% opened until residents in nursing homes are able to visit their loved ones. How important was it? To have him acknowledge this from the chairman and your group working with the committee to affect the change on visitation.
1: Representatives, Representative Frank's support um, has been enormous. And it has it has meant so much to us. He, like you said, is the chair of the House Human Services Committee he filed House Bill 892, which makes essential caregivers a statutory right here in Texas. The same day he filed that, that, Senator Lois Kolkhorst filed Senate Bill 25. Um, At the time it was Senate Bill 297, but because the Lieutenant Governor made that a priority bill, it is now Senate Bill 25, and it was identical language to Um, Representative Frank's. Senator Colcourse and Representative Frank have been two fierce advocates for loved ones in long-term care. Um, Both of their committees got copies of books that we put together. Uh, We put booklets together in August with our essential caregiver proposal and sent that to those committees and both of those chairs. Um, And then in the fall, we created a publication. It was actually a book, a hardback book, called um, "Saving Them to Death." And in that book, we had some specific requests of our legislators. We also included in those books who we are. Um, Texas Carriers of Compromise. We wanted them to know we're not we're not lobbyists. Uh, we're not attorneys. We are just families who came together because we were dealing with this unimaginable burden. And we're 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 not paying anybody anything. We, we're we're doing all this on our own. We don't we haven't hired any lobbyists. We are just families. And we wanted to make sure that they understood who we were uh, and that we're we're just constituents. We we're just we're just residents here in Texas. So we put those books together to explain who we are because since we have a name and since that name is Nationwide Caregivers for Compromise, we didn't want there to be any misunderstanding that we were any big corporation and we needed them to understand that we're just we're just people. Um, so we sent those to the House Human Services Committee, the Senate Committee on Health and Human Services, which um, Senator Colcourse chairs, and we sent them to every single Senator We have 31 of those in the state of Texas. We were actually only able to send those to half of our 150 House (laughs) representatives because we're a big state and that's a lot of people. So um, we assigned representatives. Hang on, there's my clock. Sorry about that. That's okay. So we assigned representatives to group members who bought a book had it shipped to their house, and then their job was to mail that to a legislator. Uh, they didn't necessarily get to mail it to their own because their yeah. own may have been taken. But I think I think we were able to mail it to ninety of our mm-hmm. hundred and fifty House representatives, thirty-one all thirty-one senators, which you know included that that whole um, Senate committee on Health and Human Services, and of course we made sure that whole House um, yes. Human Services committee got the books. So when Senator Kolkhorst presented Senate Bill 25 to the full Senate. She actually held up a copy of that book and she actually read excerpts from that book. And she even quoted some of my testimony when um, the Senate Committee on Health and Human Services held public hearings on Senate Bill 25. That's how invested those two legislators are in long-term care residents. Um it has meant everything to us to have legislators that invested in our cause. On top of that, each of them also filed a joint resolution. There is a House joint resolution and a Senate joint resolution. Uh, the Senate joint resolution um, actually has already made it through the Senate and is uh, on its way to the House calling for a constitutional amendment in the state of Texas. It will put this in front of the voters so the voters can decide if essential caregivers should be a constitutional right for residents in long term care facilities. And the reason this is so critical is because then it can't be paused. All those rights that are in state law were paused. All those rights that were in federal law were paused. They just put them on hold like they didn't exist. We're just going to push the pause button like it's a video game and we'll come back to that later. And then they never came back to it later until people like us started kicking and screaming at the Capitol door. Um, But the thing that is just so incredibly poignant to us is that June 12th, when I started this petition, nobody had heard of essential caregivers or cared about essential caregivers. Um, Our legislators weren't talking to us. Our our nursing facilities and assisted living and state-supported living centers weren't talking to us. Essential caregivers weren't even a word. And so we started advocating and writing letters and mailing petitions and it was just nonstop, absolutely nonstop. Um, our projects, the petition, the booklets we mailed, the letters to the committees, the letters to the governor, the letters to health and human services, the copies of the petition week after week after week, um, the the rally at the Capitol, uh, the traveling signs, those traveled for 13 weeks and we got incredible media coverage over those. Just nonstop work from July 12 when the group started until September twenty, well, September seventeenth, when we heard the governor yeah. say on television, next week essential caregivers will be allowed in facilities, and he actually said each resident will be allowed two essential caregivers, and that was kind of crazy because we only asked for one, so yeah. we were we were like, wow, that's great, um, and so from July twelfth when we started to September thirtieth or September 24th, was when Health and Human Services actually put emergency guidelines in place that allowed essential caregivers. So we went from nobody having heard of it, being made fun of, being told we're just trying to kill granny, um, being told we're wasting our time, there's no legislature in session, why are you doing this? Um, You know, We're trying to keep your loved ones safe. How dare you? All these things we heard and endured to the governor saying on September 17th, Next week, two essential caregivers. And then on September 24th, Texas Health and Human Services actually issuing those guidelines. The last day I saw my mother, my brother and I went March 12th and saw my mother. See if I can say this.
0: Yeah.
1: We picked up her laundry and said, we'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow didn't come for 202 days. I saw her again on September 30th. By September 30th, she could no longer make eye contact. She never looked around when she heard my voice. She couldn't turn her head when she heard my voice. You didn't even see any acknowledgement on her face that I was in the room or that I had made a sound. So um, whatever cognition she had left on March 12th was stolen from me. Yeah. There's nothing the legislature can do for me personally right now that will help my mother. But I can sure keep working for all those others to make sure that they don't lose what I lost so that I can try to make sure that they don't die alone in their rooms, that facilities are not denying those end of life visits, that facilities are not keeping essential caregivers out. Uh, We do have some general visitation allowed now that facilities are still saying, nope, we're not gonna do it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm gonna keep working and make sure you know you have to do that. That's what I spend my whole day doing is helping families know that they can advocate to do that, telling them how to contact their long-term care ombudsman. Um, that's that's what I do. That's what I've dedicated my every waking moment to since March 13th. Um, well, actually two weeks or so after March 13th when I re- realized that nobody had a plan. So it was really a couple weeks after that, but... Um, so many people also lost loved ones to COVID um, and they were not allowed to go in and say goodbye to them. Um, there's a lady who grew up in this town, my hometown. Mm-hmm. Um, her husband had a um, cognitive injury. He had a head injury and he was in a long-term care facility and she was never allowed to go back in and see him. Um, he, did actually get COVID and she had to say goodbye to him over FaceTime and he died by himself absolutely 100% by himself in a room four walls everything was everything was moved out it was just a sanitary room with nothing but a bed and him and whatever equipment you know the nurse needed to take care of him no belongings Uh, residents have been denied their belongings they've been denied mail um family members we have been denied the right to um, care plan meetings Um, we've been denied the right to make decisions about whether or not they should have x-rays we have been denied notification of when they go to the emergency room um residents have been denied the right to practice their religion uh, because their clergy or their um their priest, or um, whether they were, you know, Jewish or Buddhist or whatever they were, all of that was taken away from them because the access to those people who helped either provide their last rites or provide those special um, religious um, services that they were so dependent on and which were such a core part of their life and their belief system, those were taken away from them. Um, We had Um, some devout Muslim residents who uh, were not allowed to get on the floor and do their prayers. Um, I can't imagine a world where that's okay, but that's the way, that's the world we've lived in since, since March 13th, where it's okay to deny people their basic liberties in, in the name of safety. I'm not, I'm not okay with that. And I think, I think this is such an extremely dangerous precedent. Can you imagine, what if there's another pandemic, a different pandemic, something none of us have ever seen or heard of? I mean, COVID was something none of us have ever seen or heard of. If you'd have said a year ago, there's going to be a disease or, well, it would have been longer than a year ago, but you know, 18 months mm-hmm. ago that um, there will be a disease and all residents in long-term care will be blocked away from visitors. I don't think I would have believed it, but imagine another pandemic that disproportionately affects um, babies or toddlers. Yes. Could you conceive of us? telling a mother she's not allowed to leave the house with her toddler? I can't conceive of it, but yet we have set that precedent. We have set the precedent that if it disproportionately affects a certain age or what if, what if it's a race? What if it's a certain um, descendancy? What if it disproportionately affects um, African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Middle Eastern Americans, um, -Americans? Mexican-Americans? Would would we do this to somebody who has um, a certain genetic background? I mean, logically, I have to say no, but look at the precedent we have set. It's terrifying. It it really is terrifying what we have done, We, we have put a pause on people's constitutional and statutory rights in the interest of keeping them safe. The only comparison I can ever I can come up with where we've ever done this before and it's not a good one is when Japanese Americans were put into camps um, and nationwide, nationwide, that was 118,000 people. Texas is 120,000 long-term care residents. But we decided that for safety, for the safety of all Americans, those 118,000 Japanese Americans needed to be isolated from the rest of the country. It's not a good comparison, but it's the only one I got. Um, I don't really think this one was... um, rooted in racism so much as it was a war and a fear. Um, I mean, but so was COVID. So, like I said, it's a bad comparison and my future daughter-in-law is Japanese and she would probably twist my neck for making this comparison, but it's all I've got. Um, this is the only time I can ever think of that we have done this as Americans and we swore we would never do it again yeah. and yeah. we did it. I think, Wendy, we might do this again if we don't, as Americans say, this is not acceptable. It was wrong. We will never ever do it again.
0: But exactly.
1: you know what? We probably will still do it again because you have so many people, I even hear it um, in, in some of the meetings that I do. You'll, you'll hear people that will get up with some of the provider groups who will say, how come no one ever talks about the success stories? Um, I have monthly meetings with our health department. (laughs) Imagine that, first I started with a petition, now I have (laughs) monthly meetings with our health authority. Um, We have listening sessions with our health authority and provider groups. Um, There's one a month with assisted living facilities and one a month with nursing facilities and the next month will be the first one I've been invited to with um, intermediate intermediate care facilities. But I have had provider groups of all types um, say to me, well, how come you never talk about success stories? Well, number one, that's not the purpose of my group. Yes. Uh, Number two, I personally don't know of any. Um, I have one that got up and testified in front of uh, the Senate Committee on Health and Human Services about how his grandparents, he's, he's, he represents a large provider group, how his grandparents are a success story. And we should talk about success stories. His grandparents uh, lived together in an assisted living facility and they were grateful to be protected from the disease. Well, they were cognitively healthy. They lived together. They weren't alone. Um, they had the ability to watch TV and call you on the phone. Um, they had the ability to have groceries delivered to their house. Uh, it was not the same thing this is not the same thing at all as not taking people, people who are wholly and completely dependent on others and removing their, their one and only um, source of, of comfort in their lives. Uh, and then on top of that, there is what I contend and still wholeheartedly believe is blatant ADA violations. So take someone like my mom, Or the 29-year-old boy who cannot uh, have an electronic visit, but other people in the same facility can have those electronic visits, that's unequal access to their loved ones. That's a blatant ADA violation right there. Um, So the person who is cognitively healthy is entitled to a visitor, but those who are Cognitively ill or not, ADA violation right there. It's okay, we just put a pause on that one. The other one that is um, so particularly dangerous and that I've been screaming from the rafters here in Texas, but I'm I'm screaming against a deaf wall, is um, those same people, outside visitors are their protection from the potential from abuse and neglect. People with cognitive diseases and cognitive injuries, people who are bed bound, people like my mother, um, may not be able to push a call button and call for help. Um, They they can't pick up a phone and tattle to their daughter that they've been sitting in urine for six hours. Um, They can't complain that they've got a bed sore that is festering that no one has looked at in, in six weeks. So this whole time that the pandemic was taking place, those people who are unable to advocate for themselves were robbed of the people that come in and protect them from the potential for abuse and neglect. So they were unprotected that whole time. That's an ADA violation, but Here in Texas, and I do have this negative thing to say, I've got a lot of positive, wonderful things to say about the state and about my legislators, but we have a bill here in Texas. It's a great bill for first responders and frontline workers that will protect them from liability for those people who got COVID-19 and want to blame the EMT who did CPR on them. If you're dying and I do CPR on you, and I didn't know I had COVID, you can sue me. Well, this bill says, no, you can't because I'm I'm a frontline worker, I, I'm, I'm a first responder, I'm saving your life, I'm protected now from that liability in this bill. And that's a really good thing. What are they supposed to do? Say, oh, I haven't been tested, can't do CPR on you right now because I ain't got my COVID test back yet. It's ridiculous, okay. But what this bill also does is it protects other frontline workers, not just from things like that, from pandemic related things, it protects them from any omission of care during the entire pandemic. All they have to do is claim we were short-staffed due to the pandemic. If you can claim as a long-term care facility that you were short-staffed as a result of the pandemic, you are protected from civil liability for daily neglect, any kind of daily abuse. Um, I'm working really hard right now to have them change the language in that bill. I don't want frontline workers vulnerable to things that are not their fault But here in Texas, we have poured millions of dollars into our facilities to provide additional staffing for those facilities, plus millions of dollars came in from the CARES Act. So um, facility staffing reached a historic shortage prior to COVID and that's nationwide, not just in Texas. Um, But that's not an excuse for poor care, especially when all these millions of dollars have been poured into your facility to make sure that you have enough staff to maintain those daily care activities. In addition, these facilities have had the ability to allow hospice workers back in since September, and most of them have not. My mother has not had a shower since March 12th. She has only had bed baths because it requires two employees to put her on a Hoya lift, get her in the shower chair, roll her to the shower, roll her back. It's very staff intensive. So they've decided a bed bath is better. The solution is just let her hospice worker back in. The emergency guidelines allow it. The facility has decided, no, that is not in the best interest of our residents, so we're not going to allow hospice workers back in just yet. Our health authority says if you choose not to allow health, health uh, hospice workers in, you must perform the duties they were going to perform, and you must document that. Yeah. They're not doing that. No facility is doing that. Um, so not only are they short-staffed, but some of that short-staffing is self-imposed by keeping out those hospice aides. Uh, but. There are gaping holes in this bill that I'm working really, really hard with our legislators to try and convince them um, to amend in some way. I'm not saying long-term care facilities should be carved out completely. I'm not saying that at all because they do deserve some of the same protections that those police officers and firefighters and nurses and doctors deserve. There's no arguing that, but under this bill, if you're so busy and shorthanded that you didn't have time to do background checks on your new employees and one of them committed a crime against a resident, you're exempt. If if you didn't treat a bed sore um, and that bed sore got so severe that the bone was sticking out, we had a lady testify in a committee hearing showed photos of her mother's bone sticking out. That's how much her, her mother's bed sore was neglected in that time that the daughter was kept out of the facility. Facility is not liable. There's no, there's no civil liability for that. They can't be held accountable. Um, there's so, so many examples. If they refuse to allow you as a family member to take your loved one to a mammogram appointment, an oncology appointment, a dialysis appointment, they're not liable. Why? You should have let me as a family member pick them up at the door and take them myself if you didn't have the staff to do that The facilities were routinely denying family members the ability to take their loved ones to doctor appointments, which we were doing all the time uh, before. So, this is a bill that we need to work on, but it's just one of those other residual things about keeping family members out. And what it does is it shields facilities who it shields them from any abuse and neglect during that time when residents were not protected from abuse and neglect. So we keep out the people who protect them from abuse and neglect, but then we also don't allow any type of civil remedy for any abuse or neglect that took place while their protectors were kept out. It's a really ugly catch 22 that, that I hope our legislators will fix before this bill moves forward. I don't know. It's really hard to get them to see these holes sometimes.
0: Definitely. And with what you just mentioned, I I take it that, you know, your partnership with the support of the Texas Long-Term Care Ombudsman Mm -hmm. Program, I guess, is working towards some of these, you know, gaping holes. uh, So people's civil liberties don't be um, further abused upon with that. um, Can you just
1: mention a few that, I mean, other than with this current bill that you're working on? We do, we do work very closely with the Texas Long-Term Care Ombudsman Program. I do not know what this state would do without that office. I just do not. Um, As I said before, since we have three sets of guidelines, one for nursing facilities, one for assisted living and one for intermediate care, and because we have facilities that either don't know the guidelines, don't understand them or just flat refuse to follow them, it is really important that our loved ones and their family members have access to those ombudsmen, and those ombudsmen are not are not there to to bully anybody. They are there mm-hmm. to um, communicate with those facilities when family members one don't know how because yes. guidelines are complicated, and it is very hard for family members to learn these guidelines. But also, when those heightened emotions just make it impossible for a family member to communicate. Yeah we're talking about a loved one here and you know people get really emotional and then you know the facility is upset and like i said before the facility is under an amazing amount of stress the family members are an amazing amount of stress and sometimes those two people just can't communicate well that ombudsman can be you know that 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 tie in between there that can help them hear each other and can can resolve these problems and almost always does there are some exceptions when when an ombudsman can't solve a problem like when it comes down from corporate and the administrator of the facility hands are tied corporate has said this is what we're going to do well the ombudsman really can't twist that admin's arm because that's not their role but they also can't really negotiate with them either because that admin has a responsibility to do as corporate told them to do. So at that point, um, the office of the ombudsman will either get in touch with um, the corporate office or I've been known to write letters to the corporate office and attach the guidelines and the provider letters and say, here's what uh, your facility is saying you told them to do. Yes. Um, and I'll play ignorant and say, I think they just misunderstand. Could you please explain to them that this is not what you really meant? And I'll just kind of, you know, play it that way. But the ombudsman role has been very critical. One of the things that um, we actually did do together was we requested of our legislators a bill because right now in the state of Texas, facilities are required to post inside the facility, the, role and phone number of the ombudsman so in an intermediate care facility they've got a different ombudsman than long term care than you know nursing facilities and assisted living facilities but they're required to post those in the building so that a resident can roll by in their wheelchair and see the number and call it or the family member who is angry or frustrated or confused or worried or doesn't know how to deal with something you know sees that number and can call it During the pandemic though, we weren't allowed in the building. Most of the 3,100 members of my group, including me, Mm -hmm. had never heard the word ombudsman before March 13th. (laughs) I didn't know what one was. So the bill that the ombudsman office and I asked for would require a facility if they have a website to put that information on their website. when somebody's upset yeah. the first thing they do is google the website because i'm going to contact your boss i'm going to tell on you you know so exactly. um hopefully uh if it's corporate office and they they go to complain to corporate or uh they go to google a facility because they want to contact the administrator or they want to tattle there is the phone number of the ombudsman who can help mediate that before it escalates into something that is really unhealthy for that resident. It does not serve the resident well if that family member um, cannot communicate with the administrator and decides the only solution is to rip them out of that facility and move them somewhere else, or is totally in the wrong and needs to see why that facility had to do what they had to do, The ombudsman can help with that. So, this bill will require it to be on a website. I really wish um, we also required it to be on an outside bulletin board, but that was taking it a step too far. During the pandemic and as recently as January,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. wait, it was after Valentine's Day. No. February okay Uh, I have had family members text me in the middle of the night I'm standing outside my mom's facility my dad's facility my mom or dad is dying and I'm not allowed in what do I do or they'll call me Or I'll get a message, a Facebook message, which is really loud in the middle of the night. Ding! You're like, oh my gosh, what is that? Um, And I tell them, call your ombudsman. You are entitled to an end-of-life visit. They cannot keep you out. You are entitled to an end-of-life visit. Your loved one is entitled to say goodbye to you. And without me or this group, those people would not have known to do that. Like I said, we are only 3,100 families. What about the rest of those 120,000 families that don't have a Texas Caregivers for Compromise Membership Facebook group to, to, to go to? I mean, ideally, Texas caregivers for compromise should be put out of business. We need to go away. Mm -hmm. Texas needs to open visitation and make us go away so that we're not needed anymore, that resident rights are restored and we don't serve a purpose anymore. Um, And the ombudsman can take over, but we also need to make sure that residents know how to reach an ombudsman and know what an ombudsman is. There have been so many incidences. Now, what's really neat about the new guidelines, the -hmm. guidelines that were adopted in March expand that definition of end of life. Okay. So up until then, end of life has been narrowly interpreted, even though CMS has said it doesn't have to be this way, has been narrowly interpreted to mean actively dying. So until a hospice nurse says, They're hours away from death. Mm -hmm. Facilities have not allowed family members in for end of life visits. Um, It's cruel because by then that family member, their cognition is gone. They've already lost the ability to say goodbye. So what these rules do, which is really good, is if that resident is on hospice, whether they're near death or not, they are entitled to end of life visits. Okay. my mother is on hospice she's entitled to end of life visits I don't think she's near death I thought she was in March I now think she's going to live longer than anybody else in this whole world um, she kicked COVID and my mom got COVID and had no symptoms oh. but if, if you are on hospice whether you are close to death or not you're entitled to end-of-life visits. If you are nearing death, you are entitled to end-of-life visits. If you are actively dying, you are entitled to end-of-life visits. But here's the best part. If your prognosis does not indicate recovery, regardless whether you're close to death or not, you are entitled to end-of-life visits. So if there is somebody who has terminal cancer, but they still have their wits about them. They are entitled to see their loved ones those last weeks, days of their life and their loved ones don't have to wait until they've already lost all their cognition, their inability to see or speak. And they're just laying there waiting to go to sleep forever before they're allowed in there to see them. So that's such a really, um, wonderful thing that's in our guidelines, and you know who proposed that? Our long-term care ombudsman's office. They asked for that. It didn't occur to me. Our ombudsman's office asked for that, and I am profoundly grateful because it never crossed my mind. End of life sounds to me like end of life. Mm -hmm. That was her proposal, Um, and so that's one of the best things that um, I've seen come out of that office, other than the day-to-day work that they do. That is a remarkable office full of remarkable people who advocate for residents and hear the most heartbreaking stories, um, maintain their professionalism, their composure, far better than I could. Um, I. I can't tell you how many times I have cried over strangers. They may do it as well and just don't tell anybody, um, but you can't tell it. They are just like rocks of support and um, information. And so, um, and they do work very closely with us. Uh, It's not unusual for me to email them more than once a day, uh, depending on, you know, what What we have going on, if there's a certain bill that is about to um, pass a committee or um, we need to go testify on something, um, the office might email me and say, hey, you want to go testify on this? And I'm like, grabbing my car keys. Here I go. Let's go. Um, Or if it's a bill that's really important to us. Uh, But that bill that we asked for, we did have a representative who authored it for us. Uh, It has been through the House committee, and it did pass the full House day before yesterday. And so now it will uh, go to a Senate committee and then um, go before the full Senate. So my fingers are crossed that that one will actually pass. It's a very small step. It's a very small thing. But, you know, sometimes change comes in little increments. Uh, We can't, you know, um, I've told my group, (laughs) we are a howling wind trying to move a mountain. Um, and, and sometimes we just have to erode it a little bit. It, we're, we're not gonna be able to blast it wide open. So I do think we've been able to um, create some erosion over the last year, some of it more than others. Um, sometimes we accomplish nothing at all. We, we've had some failures and some disappointments, um, but like I said, we are not going away. Uh, until, until visitation is open, we are not going away.
0: Yeah. No, and that's, you know, that sounds like a fabulous partnership that you have, which you have been very effective with that partnership. And I know you mentioned this before, earlier in the conversation, but after now 18 months, how are families coping? How are they, how are they managing with all of this? We
1: have, we have a lot of families who don't even need us anymore? They don't. They don't even come to the group anymore. And that's what I want to see. Mm-hmm. I want to see them not need us. I want to see them um, able to visit their loved ones, and and not have any need for someone to advocate for them. Um, mostly, we have families uh, that have some form of visitation but they're still struggling because the emotional strain has been hard and a lot of them have a hard time coping with even the smallest of obstacles. Even if it's a reasonable obstacle at this point, they have a hard time with it. So when the new guidelines came out in March and they are very reasonable guidelines and I think they're very fair guidelines. However, in assisted living facilities, there are, there are guidelines for facilities who have and who have not offered the vaccine. Mm-hmm. The facilities that have offered the vaccine have um, less restrictive guidelines than those that have, had, have not. By offer the vaccine, that doesn't mean you had to have stuck it in their arm. Now, nursing facilities, most of those Yes, they, in fact, all of them, um, yeah, they came and administered those vaccines right there in the facilities. Assisted living facilities and intermediate care facilities were not necessarily the same way. So the definition of offering the vaccine is you've either provided the vaccine for them or you have given them um, education about it. You've told them the pros and cons of the vaccine. You've you've, uh, helped them understand uh, where to find it. A lot of people in our assisted living facilities, like I said, they have their wits about them. These are just people that need supervision or skilled nursing. It doesn't mean they have dementia. Not all long-term care residents have dementia. So Mm -hmm. all they have to do is educate people on the pros and cons of taking the vaccine. Show them where to find more information about it if they want to themselves. Because a lot of them live in apartments and have computers. Um, Give them pamphlets information sit down with them talk to them whatever um but we do have some assisted living facilities who don't want to do that they prefer the stricter guidelines so they've said "Mm -mm, we ain't doing that we we are not going to offer that information because we want to follow the stricter guidelines because we do not want visitation that that has been very hard for our loved ones and we have had some loved ones that have been so incredibly irate that i have worried they were going to pop a blood vessel. Mm-hmm. Um, the ones who lose a loved one now, um, they handle it not quite as well as the ones who lost it earlier in the pandemic. When a loved one goes into a long-term care facility, they have, they're already on a clock, uh, especially nursing facilities. They have six months to a year to live. So most of those people who were in nursing facilities in March are already either gone or approaching the end of their lives. Those who died early in the pandemic, families kind of were anticipating that. Um, They felt robbed because they weren't there, but they were anticipating it. The ones that are losing their loved ones now feel exceptionally robbed because we just got in to see granny for the first time in 14 months. And now she's gone. I saw her one time, or I saw my mother one time, or I saw my son one time and he got so agitated, he banged his head on the floor and died. There are so many tragic stories. They're not handling it well. So I've got that group as well. Um, and then I have the group that's still fighting with the facilities. Um, it's actually very discouraging. Um, and it's hard some days not to feel totally defeated when all you deal with the whole day are facilities who um, refuse to acknowledge that these guidelines are in effect and they're required to follow them. Um, so those family members are having a difficult time because they've been fighting all this time and they're still not in. There's also one more category at least once a week, at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. I get a new family, a new family who only just heard of our group and the way they heard of our group was because They have never been let in their facility, had no idea there was such a thing as essential caregivers and that they were entitled to be one since September 24th of 2020. Their facilities never communicated this to them. And these people lost all this time. And so they struggle with that also. They feel robbed and um, they're angry. We, we pass right, up, and Call your ombudsman, <laughs> you know. mm-hmm. but because um, I'm not a counselor and I hope that ombudsman has some resources to help some of these people with because I don't, um, but that's, that's another, uh, that's a real small category like I said it's only yes. one or maybe two families a week, but it is every single week, and sometimes I think I've made it a whole week without a family that didn't get in. And uh, now it'll, I'll get, I'll get an instant message, you know, late one night and it'll be, Hey, Mary, my name is so-and-so. Um, is it true that I'm allowed in the facility as an essential caregiver? Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's true. Well, they're telling me I can't because they have COVID in the building. Well, you're allowed in regardless of the COVID status of the building. Well, they're telling me I can't. Well, Let me give you some resources that say that you can. That's the main thing about our group is that I never want anyone to take my word for anything. If I tell them something, I'm going to hand them the health authorities document that says so. Um, We put that in our group, you know, in our Q and A's. We get a frequently asked question and I'll go ahead and answer it, but then I'll provide the document and I'll circle in there. Here's where the answer came from. So here's my version of the answer in language you can understand, but then here's where the answer came from. And um, it's, really, it's really upsetting uh, because most of those in that category are from our lower income, lower educated, less privileged um, communities. Mm-hmm. And it makes me so angry. It makes me so angry. I'm not even able to talk about it without wanting to cry because almost all of them are people who do not have um, the education to scour the internet and find health and human services and look at this incredibly complicated website and sort this information out for themselves they don't have that ability. Um, A lot of these are people from, I know you're not familiar with Texas, Mm -hmm. but we have an area, we have several areas. One of them's in our Valley, which is our primarily Hispanic population in in our Valley. Um, My family's from the Valley. I was actually born in San Antonio, but my mother's from the Valley. Um, My grandmother's from the Valley. Uh, My dad was actually born in New York, but anyway. but um, and then here in the Dallas Fort Worth area, um, we have an area in South Dallas, and these are uh, primarily um, are Black Americans, and um, but they're not just they're not just African Americans. These are low income um, and uh, lesser educated. We're talking about people whose homes are held together with Scotch tape, and mm-hmm their kids drop out of school in eighth grade to go to work to help pay bills. Um, They're they're on uh, on, um, every program they can get on um, because they're making minimum wage. Um, A lot of these are moms working two jobs to support their children. And it's been extremely hard for them because not only are they in these um, really low-income neighborhoods, but they've also had to homeschool their kids, and they don't have computers. And so the, the compounded um, circumstances for these families have been so hard, and we didn't have the decency to say, hey, by the way, you can come visit your mom now. Yes. What kind of people are we? You know, that we expect, we expect everybody to be able to disseminate all this incredibly complex information on their own. Um, And then the treatment that our families receive, I don't feel like it's disproportionate but I do feel like it is disproportionately received. Mm -hmm. Somebody who is not informed, that has the ability to get online and Google and discover Texas Caregivers for Compromise has a distinct advantage over someone who has no computer, who's working two jobs, who's trying to take care of four children, who's trying to homeschool those kids, Whose, whose husband is not in the picture, or I have one family, it is it is a man and his son, just just the husband and the son. Mm-hmm. The husband has, or the father, he's not a husband. The wife is gone. She died of cancer many, many years ago. He's raising his one child. Um, the, the father has an eighth grade education. When he calls me on the phone, I can barely understand him my own self. Yeah. I'm really, really struggling to understand him. I can't even imagine what it is like for that poor man to try and talk to an administrator who speaks, uh, you know, with his master's degree uh, dialogue to this man. I, I can't even imagine he, it's like he's listening to a foreign language. So I have to really struggle to understand what he's saying. And then I also have to struggle to come up with a way to tell him something complicated in a really simple way. And, and I don't want to say, hey, just call your ombudsman because I don't want to send him to another person. I don't want to like, pass him off. Uh, but this, this is a, a single father raising his son. Let me try and get this out. Mm -hmm. His son now has the cancer that his mother died of. Why can't he go see his own mother? He lost his wife. His son has cancer. Why did nobody call him and say, you're entitled to come visit your mother? But these are just little little things that, you know, make it, just make me get up in the morning and make me do this. And I get so tired. I think I can't do this another day. And then mm-hmm. I talk to somebody and go, all right, I'm up. Let's go. <laughs> Cause yeah. you know, God gifted me with the ability to do it. And I've got a job to help the ones that cannot. And I am sick and tired of seeing people that cannot help themselves being kept out of facilities, being separated from their families and um, being disproportionately affected. Whether it's the family member, whether it's the resident, I am so sick and tired of seeing people disproportionately affected by this pandemic. I'm sick of it. I don't know what I can do other than what I'm doing. I think we all have a role to play or small. Um, And I think those people who feel convicted to do something need to get up and do it instead of go, oh, you know what? That's bigger than me. I don't think I can do that. Yeah. You need to get up and do it because it might be bigger than you, but it's a whole lot bigger than somebody else. Um, We had an essential caregiver. I will not get over her. I, I will just not get over her. We had one little old lady, another one in South Dallas. Mm -hmm. she's 74 years old she went to visit her 94 year old mother as an essential caregiver and she was filing her mother's nails well the nail file punctured the pinky nail of her glove oh happens you know yeah that facility told her she had in, she had violated infection control policy and they were removing her designation as an essential caregiver based on the contract that she signed. They were totally in the right to do it. They had every right to do it. But that was the pettiest, most unreasonable thing I had ever heard of. So I had her call her ombudsman and her ombudsman resolved it talked to the facility, and I mean, her ombudsman took care of that, and she was allowed back in the facility. Um, she did leave my group, though. I haven't seen her. This was yes. months ago. I haven't seen her since then. But I think she only came to the group for that one reason, <laughs> mm-hmm. she didn't know how else, you know, to resolve it, but she was 74 years old. Why should a 74-year-old have to, you know, go online and hunt for a solution like that to see her 94-year-old mother? It's just not wrong but all of these wrongs have become so normal wendy yes so normal we're okay with it we're just okay it's not on the news we're not talking about it i mean it's i would be indignant if i didn't know anything about this and somebody told me some of the stories that i hear they're just not newsworthy anymore
0: no definitely not
1: Uh but anyway so And so,
0: (laughs) no, no, but I just wanted to, to have you just give some final thoughts of, you know, some encouragement and as well for some of our listeners that are listening as to how to get involved, whether they're in your state or not, how to get involved.
1: Whether they're in my state or not, there is a caregivers for compromise group in your state. More importantly, there is a national caregivers for compromise group. So you can go into Facebook and just type in caregivers for compromise and you'll find it. If you don't, find me on Texas Caregivers for Compromise and I'll get you there. The Caregivers for Compromise groups are not um, professionals, we're just family members, but we're there to help families. And we can also tell you what's going on in your state because so many states now are passing bills um, to put essential caregivers in place back, you know, when that was four and before. Yeah. And those groups can update you on that. And also those groups may ask you to write a letter or may ask you to make a phone call. Not everybody has to organize a traveling sign program or fly a plane, yeah. but everybody can write a letter. And you don't even have to know what to say usually the person in the group will give you a template and say, here, if you don't know what to say, plagiarize as much of this as you want to. This will help you. And we're okay with that because not everybody is a professional speaker. Not everybody is a writer. Um, Some people have less education than others. And some people are genuinely intimidated to talk on the phone and they kind of need a script. So they will help you. Uh, The important thing though is that if you have a heart for this particular issue, actually, if you have a heart for any issue, you need to work on that. But if you have a heart for this particular issue, there is a caregivers for compromise group somewhere uh, that that you can hook up with. And since this has not gone away, and since there's also a federal bill, there is a place for you to work. There is something for you to do. Um, And always, you know, talk to your neighbors, talk at your church. Um, talk to your coworkers. Find out what your, your friends are going through. Um, see if they're having issues. Um, because like I said, we are experiencing a national mental health crisis. And I think the best thing any of us can do is just check on our neighbors. Um, give them somebody to talk to. Even if you don't have a solution, give them somebody to cry at, yell at, scream at, curse at, whatever. Give them someone to talk to, give them somebody that sounds like they care. And and I think that's the best thing that we can do when we're facing a crisis like this. There are so, so many people, so many people that will not um, call a helpline, will not Mm -hmm. go see a doctor, will not take medication. And I'm genuinely worried about these people. I'm worried I'm worried about suicides. We've we've seen some suicides and some attempted suicides, even in our long term care facilities. So um, if you don't want to write a letter or make a phone call. Talk to your neighbors, talk to your friends, find out how they're doing um, and and just just be a support system, um, not just for not just for long term care residents, but for for nurses, for um, for police officers, for people in hospitals, for f- firefighters, uh, for the guy mowing your lawn. Um, it doesn't matter who it is. Just, just you know, be a willing voice. You know, when the guy drives by in the trash truck, see if he needs a bottle of water. Um, you know, do whatever you can do in your own little corner to make this world just a little bit a better place to live. That's the only advice I've got no
0: thank you so much for that and i really do appreciate your time for coming on to the long term care chronicles and you know i will put all that information in the show notes so people know where to reference everything from so thank you again